Welcome to this week's edition of Ocean Allison, where I bring you the best in ocean science, education, and conservation through conversations with people who are creating positive change for the ocean. Ocean Advocate is Pam Longobardi. Pam is a distinguished artist drawing on her love for the ocean to spark social change in regards to our planet's marine debris crisis. Hi Pam, welcome to the show. Hey Allison. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to talk to you about your work. Me too. It's been a while since we saw each other. Yeah, so to give our listeners a little bit of background, Pam and I recently met last year at the Blue Ocean Film Festival and Conservation Summit in Monaco. And I think actually the first time I met you, Pam, you were at a table in kind of the main galleria of the Oceanographic Museum wearing a hazmat suit um, (laughs) and uh, at a table with lots of plastic on it from all over the world. So it was definitely an interesting situation to meet you in, but I think probably pretty common for a lot of people that meet you. Uh, (laughs) I remember we were talking about fish bite marks in the different plastics and where these plastics were coming from and where you found them. And you were just so passionate about what you were talking about. And that really struck me. I also got to watch the film that you were in and helped produce, Plastic Free Island. Oh, yeah. Um, It was in the film festival. And I really loved that film. So you're obviously really passionate about your work. But I want to talk first about your connection to the ocean and maybe your childhood and how you currently connect with the ocean? Well, my dad was actually an ocean lifeguard on the Jersey Shore. And so I had a lot of my early experiences, both really enthralling and very scary, in the ocean. And my mother was also a water person. She was the Delaware State swimming and diving champion. So I, you know, I kind of came from this family of athletes and water people. One of the things that really changed me, and it was when I was a child, I my dad was taking us all sort of one-by-one body surfing. I was eight years old. So my dad had her out in the waves, and we were just kind of waiting by the shore. And my brother and I both got sucked into a rip, and I got wedged in between a submerged jetty, like the posts of an old jetty up on the Jersey Shore um, that was covered with barnacles. And I only could get a breath of air when a big wave pulled back. So I was there for minutes, I think, and I was struggling to get out and I got just cut with barnacles all over me. And the more I struggled, it seemed like the more I was stuck underwater and I just couldn't get anything to happen as far as getting free. And so I just sort of decided at that moment that it was okay. And that was I was just going to relax and watch the amazing life forms on that jetty. So there were barnacles and they were feeding under the water and they would put out these feathery food trappers and I was just watching them and it was so beautiful that I just relaxed at that moment and the next big wave that came through, it just pushed me out of the the jetty and I rolled onto the shore and I was just completely red. I had like millions of cuts all over me and the women on the beach screamed and but I realized that you have to be relaxed and in unison with the ocean it's too big to fight and it actually is 
one of the most, I think the most powerful force on our planet. And it, it both gives and takes away life. And so once you're in unison with that, it, it opens up itself to you and you can see its incredible manifestational powers of life and beauty. Wow, that's a really incredible and intense story. I love the outcome and I love the philosophy that you've gained from that, especially at such a young age. So you you grew up near the ocean and you have a deep connection to the ocean, but you ultimately became an artist. And in the more recent years, you have started making your art from marine debris, plastic pollution that you find on beaches all over the world. And I want to touch on how you got to that, how you started making your art from plastic pollution that has come from the ocean? Well, you know, I think I've always made work that has something to do with the inner relationship between humans and the natural world. And I think it's a psychological relationship in a lot of ways that we see ourselves as somehow separate from the natural world. And I'm interested in that, but also in envisioning the reconnection so that we see ourselves as a part of this larger matrix of nature. So with my work, I always, I think, invite chance and interventions by the natural world. So I used to work with copper and patinas and the atmospheric conditions would allow different things to happen. And, you know, so that was sort of the stand in for nature in my work. And then my activities, painting images on top of that was sort of like culture coming in. So that's been my mindset for 30 years. And so when I first saw in Hawaii, this plastic coming in from the ocean, literally being vomited out of the ocean, it wasn't dumped there from land, from people. It had been somewhere else first, and the ocean was putting it back out and spitting it out. And it made me realize that I'd grown up with plastic as a material, as a child. It was always around me, and that you know I didn't know what happened to that stuff until I saw this, and it was just like a lightning bolt struck me, and I realized that all the plastic that we've ever made on Earth is still on Earth. It just doesn't break down in the same way that other materials do. It's an alien substance we created. It breaks down smaller and smaller. It breaks down even to the microscopic level, but it doesn't go away. And that's why it's invading our ocean, our bodies, and really like changing the face of life on this planet. And I saw it in a form that was really visible because it was the things we use every day. You know, one of the first images I saw was and it wasn't even an image, it was an actual thing. It was a toilet seat. And it became this metaphor for like how we treat the ocean. We think it's a giant thing that's going to flush everything away because it goes out of our sight on land. But it doesn't. It's still there. It's still engaging with every creature that lives under there and on the surface. So it's a very omnipresent material. And we've just made way too much of it. And it's now coming back to haunt us. Can you talk a little bit about the Anthropocene, how scientists say that from the Holocene that we're in now, the epic, that we're going into the Anthropocene and, and what that means? Sure. So the Anthropocene is actually, it's a term for a geologic epoch that's been proposed. And for all of the evolution of life on this planet, we understand that through the fossil record. So it's been named based on the life forms that are entrapped in this fossil record that we have evidence from and we can see what that looked like. 
and we've estimated the, the age of all of these things through carbon dating, but this fossil record is the record of life on this planet. And so what the group of scientists who are called the Committee for the Quaternary Stratigraphy, which is the stratigraphy as the layers of the fossil record on this earth, the quaternary is the period that we are all in. And all of human evolution has occurred during one era called the Holocene. So that's the transition from apes to humans happened during the Holocene. And this coming year, 2016, right now, is the proposed date for the start of a new geologic era, which is the Anthropocene. And the Anthropocene simply means we will see in the future fossil record that human activity on this planet has altered the physical surface of the planet. And to me, that marker of that is going to be plastic. We will see this kind of layer of plastic along with things like the remnants of industrial architecture and all the things that have physically changed the surface of the earth. But those things are made from steel and metal and iron, and those things all rust and go away. It's the plastic that does not go away. So if you can imagine in the future, looking back at a fossil layer where you do like a core sample and you go down through the ages and you see there's going to be one era that's going to be completely brightly colored plastic. So plastic is it's not only our current cultural anthropology, it's also the archaeology, but it's also our waste. And it literally will become our future fossils. Can you talk a little bit about how plastic is made and what it's actually coming from? Yeah, so plastic is carbon-based. It's made from the same materials that we are, the carbon molecule. It is an organic substance just like oil is. Oil was originally the life forms on the earth, the early dinosaurs, the plant life, the atmospheric conditions preserved them into a substance called oil that we've been, you know, for the entire industrial age, uh, removing from the earth to fuel our homes, our cars, light our streets, create all the technology we use today. It's energy. So originally it was, it was sunlight. And then it became fossilized in these life forms that turned to oil. And now what we're doing is, of course, going to the most remote regions of the planet offshore to get this oil out because we've used all the readily available oil in, in many places. So plastic is made from petroleum. And with when this substance is turned into plastic, it kind of locks up this energy in a hard form, a hard form that is extremely useful and valuable, but the problem with the way that humans have been using it is that we use it for five seconds or five minutes or one day or less and then throw it away. So it's extremely wasteful use of this material. And we're creating these objects that we use for a few minutes. Exactly. And, and then those objects themselves, you know, we don't have a negative relationship with them. We, in fact, we don't have much of a relationship at all. In fact, we use them for just a moment, throw them away, and where do they go? They go, oftentimes, to the ocean. So it's down there where they take on a different life, and they're not benign. They cause tremendous trouble for the sea creatures of the ocean. They're bit by all kinds of creatures. They're swallowed. 
the nets, which are also made of plastic, entangle creatures and kill them unnecessarily. It has a disastrous impact on life on this planet. And another part of it is, of course, the impacts on human life. It, it, we think it's benign. We've been told it's benign, but it's not. It's actually linked to a tremendous number of diseases and human health issues. What types of marine debris are you most commonly finding on beaches around the world? Well, first of all, I want to just mention something. I don't like to call it marine debris. I think we need to call it what it is. It is plastic pollution. Marine debris, I believe, was almost a propagandistic term that was invented in order to not alarm people and also to satisfy oil companies and plastic manufacturers. They didn't want to be called out, but 80 or 90 percent of the debris that's causing problems is plastic. So we need to call this what it is. It's plastic pollution. I actually always find myself saying in the same sentence, marine debris and plastic pollution. I always combine them. And I think it kind of is linked to what you were just saying, that I like saying marine debris because it relates it to the ocean. But I also like saying plastic pollution for the simple fact that we're using that pointed word plastic and we're connecting it to all the plastic that we use in our everyday lives. So I think that's a really good point that we can't just call it marine debris because we need to pinpoint the source, the plastic. I do think sometimes marine debris helps us relate back to the fact that it ends up in the ocean. Yeah, no, that's great. And in the plastic pollution circles, you know, the activists that work with this, we think of marine debris as a generic term because it's also coconuts and it's driftwood and things like that, stuff that's natural, that belongs there, that actually is useful and helpful in that environment, that the ocean moves around so creatures can live on it. And it's such a complicated issue, you know, and I think, yeah, like both of those words together, or maybe it's something like marine plastic pollution or marine plastic waste or garbage or something. Yeah, but I think we need new terminology. Yeah, we need a hybrid term to (laughs) combine those two together. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) Yeah. So the items that you're finding on these beaches all over the world, can you talk a little bit about them? Sure. You know, I do work all over the world, and it seems like there are some things that are the same everywhere and some things that are different. The ocean is a giant sorting mechanism. It's like an engine for moving things around. And it tends to move things based on the currents and the hydrodynamics and the weather systems and all of that differentially. So the reason why my discovery of this material, you know, seeing it firsthand in 2006, so 10 years ago on the south point of the Big Island was so impactful is that is the most remote island chain in the world and the south point of the big island you know is facing the large swath of the pacific ocean and that little point is kind of a funnel or a trap for so much material that's moving around in the the northern pacific subtropical gyre which is one of the currents that is responsible for all this material so gyres are circulating ocean currents and they move the material around South Point just happens to be a place where it catches. So I found on that island tip plastic that was printed with almost every language on Earth. And how did it get there? It got there because of the engine of the ocean. It's just been moving around these currents. 
sometimes for a very long time. You know, I found things that I know were from the 50s. I can date them because of the style and the age of the plastic. And soon I hope to be able to identify even the earlier forms of plastic before we had the numbers one through seven recyclable plastic types. So this stuff is old, some of it. Some of it's traveled from Europe, of course, Asia, because that's just on the other side of the Pacific Ocean. But to find something printed in Czech on the Big Island is kind of shocking. It makes you realize, you know, we have one ocean. It's an interconnected system. The stuff moves around just physically through hydrodynamics, but it also is moving around through the global shipping network. Container spills oftentimes dump things on their way across the ocean. It's just an unfolding drama, I like to say. I feel like I'm looking at the evidence of a crime sometimes. I feel like I'm looking at stuff that has been wantonly abandoned and oftentimes has has already killed or caused damage to a fish, a creature, or humans. So, you know, the first time I saw that point on South Point and the piles of plastic that I could stick my arm to the shoulder up into and I still wasn't at the bottom, the net balls that were 30, 40, 50 feet long and weighing tons, I felt like I was witnessing a crime scene. And so part of the way that I clean beaches is as a kind of forensic scientist, I'm looking for what the ocean might be telling me about this material so I can document it, so I can come back and tell people what I have discovered. And so from that time when you were at the South Point of Hawaii and this really profound moment in your life, you went on pretty soon after that to start the Drifters Project. Can you talk about starting the Drifters Project and what it is and what its mission is? Yeah, so the Drifters Project is a artistic, research-based, collaborative project that is looking at ocean plastic as a metaphor, as a physical material, and as something that needs to be transformed from its invisible state and negative impacts into some kind of new life. So it initially started with just me by myself, and I decided I needed to call this a project because I could see that it was way bigger than just myself, even when I was only doing it alone. I started connecting with scientists because I wanted to learn more and more about the physics of the ocean. I wanted to learn about what was happening way far offshore. I wanted to know about the politics of it. In fact, the NOAA Marine Debris Division was started in 2006, also the same year that I started my project. And so early on in that first year, I linked with them. And, you know, it was really interesting because it was the first time in my entire life that artists had been brought to the table in the same playing field as scientists, as policymakers. There was a real leveling effect of hierarchy. And with that leveling effect, we were able to bring all kinds of voices together. And art was finally at the table. And so I think art is absolutely a critical tool right now for transforming the vision of what this material is, because science can give us all kinds of alphanumeric understandings of it based on that kind of reality, but it rarely has the same visual impact as art. And so it's kind of like the triangulation between art and science and activism that I think is going to be the engine that's going to drive this transformation where we change the way we think and use plastic. And I actually, I just saw an article about you, a featured article about you, and 
it quoted, you have the eye of an artist, the mind of a scientist, and the heart of an activist. And I absolutely think that that is so spot on. <laughs> I wish I had thought of it. And I think you're totally right. I think converging those three things, you do that within yourself. The Drifters Project is one organization that definitely combines those three things. And I also want to talk a little bit about the Gyre expedition that you got to go on with Nat Geo. You went up to Alaska with a team of actually scientists and artists on board to survey and assess and collect the plastic pollution that was washing up on the shore. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that came to be and your experience doing that? Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. I I got a phone call on my, it was just a voicemail on my office answering machine in my at my university. It was from Howard Farron, who was the director of conservation for the Alaska Sea Life Center. I didn't know him, and he had just called me out of the blue and left a message saying that he had found me after doing almost a year of research and finding exactly the person he wanted to talk to and that he was putting together an art and science expedition to Alaska and would I be interested? <laughs> and I called him right back and we had, you know, almost a two hour conversation for him at that point. It was just an idea. So he had enough ability to bring me up for just a quick visit to Alaska. I'd never been there before. It was astounding. You know, it's just a whole different world up there. I really was so impressed and moved by it. And we went and talked to the Anchorage Museum and I gave a talk there and then we had a like a meeting with the president of the museum and pitched them the idea. And that was the first institutional buy-in that we had for the project. And they were instrumental in making it happen. And so Howard spent the next if you can believe, five years writing grants. I went to some fundraising things that we did, and I was kind of in charge of helping shape the art team. So we ended up with artists and scientists and actually policymakers from NOAA, and we had a scientist from the Smithsonian. We had Mark Dion, who is an amazing artist um, and actually one of my heroes, and it was the first time I've been able to do a project with him. We had international artists from England. We had Alaska-based people that work in the field there. It was just such an interesting crew. And we spent a week going to remote coast of Alaska by ship. And we ended up removing four and a half tons of plastic material from these remote coasts. And then the artists on the expedition made art out of that which became part of a traveling exhibition, which is just now closing. So it traveled for two and a half years around the country. And so Nat Geo wasn't actually fundamental part of the project. They merely came along and made a short film about it and really documented what was going on. Yeah. So the film came about because there's a, an amazing director, a filmmaker named JJ Kelly, who is a Nat Geo director. And he, was willing to do the project and do the filmmaking. And then Nat Geo got on board as far as supporting the film. And the film became a really instrumental piece of that project because Nat Geo decided that they wanted to make it free and available on the internet so that it got a global accessibility, you know, without having to even have a television. So people all over the world have seen this film. It's on the website. You can check it or we can put a link for it. We also had 
an amazing photographer, still photographer, who also worked with us, Kip Evans, who is Sylvia Earle's photographer, videographer, and director of travel and expeditions for Sylvia Earle and Mission Blue. So, you know, we had just the most amazing film and video documentarians on that trip. It was just an honor to be there with everyone that was involved. And it's so great that this trip was not only bringing to light the marine debris and plastic pollution issue up in these remote parts of Alaska, but it was really, like you said earlier, combining the artists and the scientists and even potentially more so highlighting the artists as activists and change makers in this issue. So that actually brings me to my next point that I wanted to ask you about. As a plastic pollution artist, you have had installations put in museums and airports and all these other incredible places all over the world. Can you talk a little bit about some of the installations that you've made, what we might see if we were at one of your installations, and what you hope to evoke when someone comes into one of your installations? Well, they're all site-specific, so I think the best way to answer that is to just talk about one in particular, and it's it's a show that was one of my favorite. I've been working in Greece for five years. In fact, this summer will be the sixth season there, and we put up last summer an exhibition at the Gulandris Museum of Natural History in Athens. The work happens mostly on an island called Kefalonia, but this Athens Museum came over to work with us because they'd heard about our project and we were able to make this show happen last year at the beginning of our field season. Myself and Deanna Cohen, who is my primary collaborator in Greece, she's the CEO of Plastic Pollution Coalition. She works with plastic bags as her primary art form and I work with ocean plastic. I make my installations out of the material and I like to use the actual material that I find because I think it already has resonance and power because they're things that we use every day. So it could be combs and toothbrushes and bottles and then stuff we don't know what we're looking at, you know, sort of alien objects that have been transformed by the plastic journey through the ocean and the creatures that live on it and the ones that are bitten by sharks and turtles and all these different kinds of things. And I I arrange them in such a way to show a sign or a symbol or an image I use a lot of black plastic because I like to talk about plastic's origins in oil and petroleum. And I think it also is kind of dark matter. So these are poetic descriptions of the material. I also was able to make my artwork by doing interventions into some of the museum displays there. So they have a Victorian part of the museum that has taxidermied creatures and they have one that was amazing. It's a triceratops. So this is a fossil reconstruction of a whole triceratops dinosaur. And they allowed me to put a whole styrofoam landscape underneath the triceratops. So I got to make this sort of plastic connection to fossilized dinosaurs' life. And this was all plastic that I'd found in a sea cave, all styrofoam. And so I arranged it almost like a beach that he was walking on. And then they had some taxidermied sea turtles. There's a lot of sea turtles that nest in Greece, and I was able to bring nets and plastic from Kefalonia and arrange them, sadly, entrapping the turtle to just show some of the modern reality now with plastic. 
that is creating problems for these creatures. So it was kind of updating a 1920s version of the museum with the contemporary situation that the plastic is causing for these creatures. I think that is a really bold statement to make, and I think it's one that really needs to be made. I would love to go to that installation. I'd love to go to that exhibit or any of your exhibits at some point. I think that from the photos that I've gotten to see and the videos that I've gotten to see that document your art installations, it seems that they are very impactful and very good at sparking social change. So I also want to ask you a little bit about your position as artist in residence with the Oceanic Society. Um, That is an amazing honor. Congratulations on getting that. I want to actually ask you a little bit more about it. What does being the artist in residence for the Oceanic Society entail, and what have you experienced through that? Well, I've been really lucky because Oceanic Society is the oldest nonprofit ocean conservation group for the United States. They've sort of transformed over the years into an eco-travel organization. They take people on trips that involve a lot of times collaborating with science, monitor sea turtles or observing whale behavior, sometimes even cleaning beaches. That's what they've done in for years on Midway, helping the albatross scientists there get the plastic out of the way of the albatross. So I call myself the plastic interpreter when I go on these. So I'm artist in residence, plastic interpreter. And I was able to go on an amazing trip from Bali to Komodo on an old wooden ship. And it was primarily, you know, a snorkeling and wildlife expedition. So Wayne is a naturalist and, you know, specialist in sea life. I came along to experience that, but also to do my thing, which is I'm always photographing and removing all the plastic that I see and bringing it back to show people. So while everybody was photographing the fish and the amazing sea life there, I was photographing the plastic and oftentimes would dive down and bring it up and tie it in bundles. So sometimes I had huge bundles of plastic tied to me while I was swimming back to the boat. And then I'd bring it on board and I was able to give talks about, you know, what I had found because I do think that all of the plastic is telling us something. I really feel that the ocean is is a conscious entity that's communicating with us through the materials of our own making, through this plastic, and we can learn a lot from it. You know, I found things that had been bitten by different creatures and we could try to understand what creatures had bitten it and maybe were they ingesting it or were they just testing it. I found really, really old plastic so we could see that the stuff had been on that beach or on that island for decades and was to the point of dissolving back into microplastic. There's just so much material to look at and to learn from and to react to and to understand and ultimately change our behavior about. So my big thrill with Oceanic from that trip was, besides getting to see Komodo dragons, which incidentally, they also eat the plastic. I found a bolus, which is when owls and other creatures ingest materials that are undigestible. They kind of throw them up like an owl pellet. You might have heard of that. Well, Komodo dragons, living dinosaurs, actually do it too. And I found a big blue bottle cap from a water bottle in a Komodo dragon bolus, which was very disturbing. But what happened was we we were able to connect with a local activist who was also on the boat. He was a naturalist, the local guide, 
and found out that he'd been doing plastic activism for all these years and he felt alone. And so he became the first honorary member of the Drifters Project in Bali. And so he's continuing that work. And Oceanic itself made a policy decision within their organization to offer reusable bamboo cutlery and metal straws and stainless steel water bottles as trip preparation for their expedition people so they don't have to use plastic straws and they don't have to use plastic materials. A lot of these people are adventurers. They travel a lot and all this stuff is excellent because you don't have to use the disposable toxic plastic that you know is causing so much problem for us and the creatures of the world. And that actually brings me to a really good point. For you, with all of this art that you create and the spark that you're hoping to evoke in people, what are some of the things that you really hope that people will change in their behavior after they either see a talk by you or they see your artwork or they read your book? What are those some of those changes that you hope that people will make? Well, I think, you know, every single day we make decisions, hundreds of them, either towards or away from plastic. And right now we don't think about that very much. So by seeing my artwork, which is composed of all these different materials that we we use every day and throw away and don't think about, that they might start thinking about their daily activities and what passes through their hands and what relationship they have with this stuff. And then by the time they, you know, have had a conversation or read a little bit more, maybe they'll do some research if they hear something like the word endocrine disruptors. What is that? Well, it's something that plastic does to our bodies. And, you know, it's a cause of lots of diseases that have been linked now to this. So maybe that part of it will trigger a little further investigation. But simply that plastic will no longer be invisible in our lives, that it won't be seen as this eh benign object. It's not benign. It's useful, but it's also dangerous once it's not being used anymore. It's possibly dangerous while it is being used. It's valuable. It is the source of future oil. We now know that you can turn plastic back into oil and energy. And so, you know, it's not garbage. It's something we've got to treat differently, but mostly we can't keep making new plastic. So, to move away from it and to use reusable things, not disposable. Disposable doesn't work. We need to go back to reusable. We don't have an endless amount of material on this planet to keep making stuff that we don't do anything with, and we're seeing it coming back to haunt us on the beaches all over the world. And I've shifted my own behavior, and this is why I know this is possible. All those things, I think, are potential outcomes. You know, I know they happen because people have told me time and time again, over and over again, they will never think about plastic in the same way after seeing my art or hearing one of my talks. You know, that's what I'm hoping for. And I'm hoping that we have enough time to do it. I think we have about five minutes. You know, we really have to make big changes really soon. That's why I think there's an urgency to all of this. And I super appreciate the chance to talk with you today, Ocean Allison, because you're part of the vehicle, you know, you're a change agent. And thank you for for doing that. Yeah, well, I also really want to thank you for all of the incredible work that you're doing, this passion that you have for the ocean and for telling people about how our plastic pollution that we've created is really affecting our planet and affecting us as humans. So I really want to thank you for all the incredible work that you're doing for our oceans and for our planet. And I really want to thank you as well for being on the show today. 
Well, it's been super awesome. And um, yeah, I think, you know, we're in an ocean moment. I think the ocean is calling all of its artists, its speakers, its contributors, its activists, its lovers to call forth and to stop the downward slope we're going on and to change that. And we can do it. Nature can heal itself and we can heal ourselves. So I love that you're doing these podcasts and I can't wait to talk to you again. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really great point is that we have to stay positive. We have to stay optimistic because there is some time for us to make change. If, if we can create change on an individual level and on a larger scale as well, we can turn this around. We can get our oceans back on track and our, our planets and our bodies back on track. For all of our listeners, if you have been inspired by what Pam is doing, you can connect with her via her website and her social media links, as well as the Drifters Project website. I would also really would like to encourage all my listeners to watch Pam's documentary film called Plastic Free Island, and I will link to all of those sites and the film on my website and on my social media channels when I post this episode. So again, Pam, thank you so much for taking the time and being on the show today. I think that all the work that you are doing is incredibly inspiring and is definitely creating positive change for our oceans. Thank you, Allison. Oceans of Love from Atlanta. You just heard Pam Longabardi, distinguished artist working to spark social change in regards to our ocean's plastic pollution problem. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, visit my website at allisonrandolph.com. And tune in to next week's episode to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.